everyone, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 5, Bedtime Stories, written by Katherine Humphreys and directed by Mike Roll. And today's episode, Fairy Tales, Bedtime Stories, but more specifically, Fairy Tales, and the performance of knowledge of what these fairy tales imply or mean and Sam and Dean's interaction with the fairy tales as a metaphor for what they're actually going through themselves currently. So <laughs> it's a cute little episode. It doesn't really evolve anything, but it basically lays things out on the table for what these guys' current state is in a cute way with Snow White. <laughs> We do have something really interesting for this episode. There's not a ton of supplemental material for it. There's nothing on the Blu-ray. There's not a lot of script pages, but we do have a few things. And one of them is the storyboards for the cold open scene, which are really cool and give you an idea of how much planning and forethought goes into every shot. It's only for that one scene, but... It's really cool because they they draw out what they want to happen and what camera angles they want to use and what what the movement of the scene will be. And it gives you an insight into the production process and how detailed every stage of the process is. I figured people would be really interested to see that because we don't have those for very many episodes, but they're really cool for when we where we do have them. We also have casting sides for Dr. Garrison, which gives us quite a bit of his scenes in the episode and and little bits surrounding his scenes in the episode. And we have the casting sides for the Crossroads Demon. Sandra McCoy was cast for the role, and at the time, she was Jared's real-life girlfriend. It's kind of horrifying when you think about what her role is in this episode and I can only imagine that this was a traumatic thing for Jared as a person to have to enact with his girlfriend at the time. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yikes. (laughs) Uh, She doesn't show up until the final scenes of the episode, but yikes is all I have to say. But we'll talk about that more when we get there. We've been saying from the beginning of the season that one of Dean's things that's been troubling him all season is... His concern that Sam didn't come back right, and I mean, that's even brought up as a major segment of the then segment of the episode, the yellow-eyed demon telling him, are you sure you brought, you know, really brought back Sam? And this is another thing that goes to the audience that, holy crap, maybe there really is something seriously wrong with Sam. It, It basically takes the message of the rest of the episode and just turns it inside out and shows us this entirely different side of Sam that is kind of distressing. Dean won't find out about it until the next episode, but still. <laughs> I've talked about it some, but like the original plot of season three, if it hadn't been shortened by the writer's strike, was to have Sam truly progress into the dark side of himself that he finds in season four. That was all supposed to unravel by the end of this season and destroying himself to save Dean. 
since that couldn't happen because they ran out of time to evolve the plot. But like the first half of the season is really showing us this darker side of Sam that we'd never seen before and really does start pushing you to question what the hell is wrong with Sam? Why is he this cold and brutal? Like he didn't even kill his first living person. You know, they did like salt and burns and stuff like that. And, but he didn't actually shoot somebody and kill them until near the end of season two. And we assume, based on other stuff in the series, that he really wasn't involved in the actual fighty part of hunting until after he came back with Dean here. All of a sudden, that Sam who, just the sweetest guy, you feel like he couldn't have hurt anything. And all of a sudden, he's turned into this brutally ruthless killer with no apparent remorse, justifying his actions as trying to do what he can to try and save Dean. It's just heartbreaking knowing what it's going to make him vulnerable to after Dean dies and goes to hell, that he is going to be vulnerable to Ruby's influence over him and everything she does to lure him into his destiny, supposedly, and how Dean reacts to that, knowing that he's got a limited amount of time left and he's not sure whether Sam's okay. That's all eating away at Dean, like, What can he do to fix this? Is there anything he can fix? Can he save his brother? You could see those themes in these early episodes of season three. And then after the writer's strike break, after episode 12, it disappears until season four. The back half of season three, there's not an awful lot of talk about Sam potentially having already gone somewhat to the dark side. That fall happens for him in the hiatus between season three and four. So it's interesting to talk about it in the context of early season three when it brought up all these doubts about him. But it gets put on a back burner while other stuff has to happen in order to bring about the end of season three with the shortened season. So we'll talk about that as we go along as well. But I just want to remind everybody what my mindset is when I'm talking about these episodes is that this is the season that gets chopped. (laughs) And now, since I've already talked about half the then segment, I suppose we should just go ahead and talk about the rest of it. It starts off with our standard this season of Dean telling Sam, Dad's dead and we have to carry out his legacy. That becomes like the opening statement of every episode of early season three, at least. So far, we're only five episodes in, but that's almost a third of the way of the season for season three. That's still the running theme, starting with John's funeral pyre, and his fake gravestone from Dean's dream world, saying that his legacy was to kill as many evil sons of bitches as they could. So Dean is back finally. He's no longer running away from his life and giving in to whatever whim he has. And you can tell the the shift is happening from him playing footloose and fancy free at the beginning of the season, indulging in whatever he wanted to. He's grounded back in the reality and he's slowly starting to have to face the consequences of his choice to save Sam by any means necessary. This episode is nice in that it serves as a little metaphorical reminder of all of that without feeling heavy about it yet because there's plenty of time for Dean to feel heavy about it all. You know, I think that shift starts happening so early in the season 
because they had originally planned to save Dean from having to go to hell. He was not supposed to die and go to hell. Sam was going to save him at great cost to himself. So, yeah, that's I think that's why they lighten his burden a little bit here, because it wouldn't have long lasting consequences instead of what it actually did with him going to hell and being rescued and the apocalypse and all of that that hadn't even been planned yet. Up next, we get the refresher about the cult, how it was made, that the, there's a limited number of bullets, and then we watch them use the rest of the bullets until the gun was no longer functional without its magic bullets. And then we get last week's episode of Ruby, teaching Bobby how to make the bullets. Reminder of Ruby, reminder that she's a demon, and reminder that she's kind of a helpful demon. How suspicious should we really be of her? <laughs> Very, very suspicious. Be very suspicious. <laughs> huh. Love to be suspicious. Anyway, we get Dean talking with the demon last week about his deal that he's got a year to live. She asks him if he's scared and he's like, of course not. Interspersed with him facing down monsters and shooting things and stabbing things and the gin that he killed and... and He's not scared of those, but you can see in his eyes that he's scared of hell. But he's also scared for Sam because that shot of Dean saying, course not, bleeds right into Sam killing Jake in the season two finale. Then the yellow-eyed demon taunting Dean about whether or not that's really actually Sam. And then last week, Dean asking Bobby, really concerned if Bobby thinks there's something wrong with Sam. And Bobby saying, nah, of course not, as we watch footage of Sam shooting Casey the demon and not even flinching, because this is very un-Sam-like. Dean can't even look at Bobby when he hesitantly agrees with Bobby's assessment that Sam's fine. We saw that scene he had with Ruby where he was angry with her, and we got to see that, but Dean did not. Ruby manipulating him into understanding that hard choices have to be made because there's a war on and that they don't have good choices, that there's going to be casualties that they can't avoid because Sam was upset about not just shooting the demon, but shooting the woman the demon was possessing. So Sam does recognize that this is a horrific thing he's done. But he doesn't see why Dean might see it as horrific in a different way. Sam feels horrible that he killed this woman and he expresses that to Ruby, but not to Dean. And so Dean is worried about him. But Sam thinks, oh yeah, I gotta put on a brave face because we gotta kill these demons. Ruby's right. This is a war. Gotta get rid of them somehow. And we've got this magic gun that can do that. So everybody's in a moral quandary and it's causing problems for them all for different reasons because they're also not talking well to each other, which, you know, is the main cause of problems on this show. <laughs> Somewhere is my miscommunication tag, which is just like, oh my God, please just talk to each other. It wouldn't be the show it is if they did. So hooray, I guess. <laughs> but that's the note on which we go into the episode. Dean seriously concerned for Sam. Like, he knows his deal's gonna come to eventually. He kissed the demon. There's no turning back that deal now. If he tries, Sam dies and undoes the whole point of him having done the deal in the first place. He can't live with that either. And then we go to now. 
we open up on a beautiful shot of the full moon, slightly obscured by wispy clouds. The camera slowly pans down, and I mentioned the storyboards. This is all in the storyboards, like the camera angle movements, and it's a little bit different from the storyboard, how this exact scene plays out, like technically, like where the camera movement goes and stuff. But it's so similar that you can see the bones of the episode in those storyboards, and it's really cool. So it's like reading 16 pages of a comic. It's really amazing. Just go check them out. Anyway, we pan down from the moon to a billboard that says, like, Once Upon a Time on it, which is the opening of every fairy tale ever, right? Except this isn't a fairy tale. This is a housing development billboard. Once upon a time, all houses were made this well. It's after dark at this construction site and construction equipment and a few lights around. Then we look up and there's three brothers there having a conversation that gets interrupted by a growling noise. They're arguing about the quality of the wood they got. They've got like a massively bent board, like curved wood. And he's like, we can't build anything with this. You know, we got crews coming in the morning to put this together. We can't work with this. One of the other brothers is like, yep, we should have ordered cinder block like I wanted. And it's like, okay, these are clearly the three little pigs. One wants, you know, the wooden house, the the brick house. And unfortunately, there's no straw house because who on earth would build luxury homes out of straw in New York State? You'd freeze to death in a straw house in New York State. But they're talking about like one gust of wind and the whole place will blow over. And the other pig, the other pigs, the other brothers are, <laughs> I guess they're pigs. Um, the other brothers dismiss that argument and then they're interrupted by the growl. Again, only one brother heard it, but he's getting concerned. He walks over around the side of a giant front loader to investigate the, no- the source of the noise and he finds nothing. And he makes a little snorting sound like... <laughs> like a pig noise in case the metaphor wasn't clear this is the guy that wanted to build the houses out of cinder block one of the other brothers is like yeah yeah i'm gonna go warm up the car walks around behind a pile of wood and is immediately attacked and dragged to the ground we get to see just the blood splatter the second brother goes to try and help his first brother the one who gets taken out by the big bad wolf apparently He's attacked, and we see blood splatter the paper diagrams of the houses. So I guess not straw, but paper is his thing. And the third brother, the one who originally wanted the concrete, goes and hides behind a pile of cinder blocks. Eventually, the big bad wolf finds him as well and attacks him, and then we get the title card. So we don't get to see what happens to him yet. We know from having watched the episode in the past that he's the brother that survives, the one who wanted to live in the concrete house. At the end of the cold open, he's at least been attacked by the wolf himself. Let's see if the bricks protect him. (laughs) After the title card, we open on a frog. No, really. It's a little bullfrog sitting on the street making frog noises. And in the distance, you can see a car's headlights coming, and we can eventually tell it's the Impala, As it drives past, it splashes the frog, and he jumps off the road. So, already we're thinking, oh my gosh, a frog in an episode about fairy tales, with the little fairy tale jingly music playing in the background. You're immediately thinking, oh, frog prince, right? 
you've got to kiss the frog and it turns into the handsome prince and the princess gets to save the prince and turn him back into a human but there's more to that fairy tale and I was reading on my tumblr there's a post there by Tris the cabbage that I will link it has an interesting uh, analysis of the frog prince myth the princess drops something valuable into where she can't retrieve it from the frog's pond and he promises to fetch it for her in exchange for her taking him to her home. Originally, it was to sleep on her pillow, but other versions have it where she has to kiss him. He retrieves the precious object from the pond and hands it back to her, and she walks off without the frog. She tries not to pay him for his service with what he asked for. The frog follows her home, and eventually, you know, the king agrees that the girl has to abide by her end of the bargain and let the frog sleep on her pillow, and after three days, it turns into a prince. It's sort of like the obligation of a debt being unfulfilled or being avoided in the myth with the kiss. Like, compare this to Dean's current situation with his demon deal. Deal sealed with a kiss, but also that he's starting to want to get out of it. I mean, I don't think he ever wanted, was like thrilled about having to pay that price, but he's already kissed the frog. His deal hasn't come due yet, but he's starting to want to run from it. And definitely Sam is trying to get him out of it, but there is no getting out of this deal, as we'll talk about at the end of the episode. But that's the situation he's trapped in. So we see this frog here this one time. But we're going to see this frog again throughout this episode, and it never materializes as part of the story. But the fact that it is a myth, it is a fairy tale that people know and pings something in your brain. Oh, yeah, you kiss it and it turns into a prince. Not if you avoid your obligation of paying for its service to you in the way it requested. So just an interesting take on the frog throughout this episode, but there it is for the first time. Just a little bit of silent storytelling that we're able to see as a thread through this episode, even though it's never mentioned why that frog is there. Well, I mean, they talk about the frog, but (laughs) not in this way. (laughs) But once we move inside the car, you know, let's leave the frog behind on the side of the road. Sam and Dean are arguing about Dean's deal. So we're already primed to be associating that frog sighting with the discussion of Dean's demon deal. Sam is suggesting that since they have the cult, they have a weapon that could kill a demon. We should just go directly to the nearest crossroads, summon the crossroads demon, and force it to tear up your deal because they have leverage in the form of a gun that could kill her. Dean is like, we can't do that because we don't know if she'll agree to that. And Sam's like, well, then if, if we don't, we'll just kill her and then your deal is off anyways because she can't collect on it if she's dead. And Dean's like, we don't know if that's going to work either. Like, why are you pressing this? If I try to get out of this deal, you die. Can you not? And Dean is just angry with Sam and Sam is adamant that Dean listened to him. This is part of that miscommunication that Sam always feels that Dean doesn't respect his adulthood, that he is just as capable of handling stuff as Dean is and that he might have some valuable insights and information. But this is just so mind bogglingly wrong on so many levels. And yet Sam is 
reached desperation point, not to say that Dean hasn't done some mind-bogglingly wrong things for terrible reasons in the past, too, when he's been under emotional duress, but this is one of those for Sam. (laughs) Like, let's just call it what it is. It's a terrible idea. Just like it was a terrible idea for Dean to sell his soul to save his brother in the first place. It's all just terrible ideas. (laughs) But When you're traumatized and you're running out of options, I mean, think it's been at least five months. Yeah, this is October. It's nearing Halloween, they say later in the episode. So if Dean made his deal in May, that's five months. And they have not been able to find any sort of help for Dean out of his deal. So as everything looks right now, I can understand why they'd be starting, Sam would be starting to feel stressed and hopeless about finding a way to save Dean. In this scene, yeah, Dean acts like kind of a jerk to Sam, but Sam also kind of acts like a petulant kid. Dean is absolutely right. It sounds like a good idea on the surface, and Sam, I get it, desperation, he's finally got something to use as leverage against this demon. But Dean is also right. It's an if, it's a maybe They can't just go in and expect it to work. Dean said, if they screw with the deal, you die. Meaning they get one shot at going after the demon. Because if they fail, Sam dies. Because it's not just if they succeed at breaking the deal. It's if you even try to break the deal, Sam dies. So Dean is 100% right here. They cannot just walk up to the demon and go, hey, we have this gun. We'll kill you if you don't break the deal. Because they don't know if that's possible. They don't know if killing the demon who holds the deal will do anything to the deal or if it just transfers to hell, which we'll find out it does at the end of the episode, that it doesn't even belong to the demon who made the deal. So there's really nothing they can do to stop it. And Sam is still perfectly willing to risk his own life knowing this. I mean, he was already dead once. What's one more time? I guess. And Dean is not. He's like, I've already gone through all of this. That's what I had to do, you know, because of that whole lifetime of save Sammy. Watch out for your brother. Protect your brother. You don't matter, Dean. Just Sam does. And Dean's like, I'm doing what's best. And he just yells this at Sam. Sam responds with, you're not dad, meaning this is the sort of thing that dad would have made you do. You don't have to do that anymore. And Dean is like, yeah, well, I am the oldest. So even though he's he knows he's not John and he's not beholden to everything that he was raised with that led them to this point, it's still his responsibility to watch out for Sam and take care of Sam. For all he knows, they could go try and break this deal and the demon would just kill both of them on the spot for trying to break it. So it's not just Sam's life on the line. The demon could kill Sam and then still take Dean's soul at the end of the year. So then they're both dead. So we really have to see this from a bigger perspective. Otherwise, you you fall into that trap of Dean should have just listened to Sam. Sam was right. They should have just gone after the demon. No, but like the rest of the show proves out to us that that was the wrong course of action. So like I'm trying to be fair to both of them here and point out why Sam's argument looks reasonable on the surface, but 
really is not and how Dean's argument looks obnoxious and pushy on the surface, but really he's got reasons for that. But yet they're still not talking to each other about these reasons. So (laughs) they just go under the radar. And yeah, not to mention Dean is still kind of worried about Sam and what might actually be wrong with him. In order to change the subject, Dean is pushing Sam to tell him about this case that they're driving towards of a psychotic killer who rips his victims apart with brutal ferocity. And Dean's like, okay, well, any mention of his sharp teeth or claws or animal eyes or anything like that. And Sam's like, no. For some reason, Dean jumped right to Big Bad Wolf in the description. And Sam mentions that the lunar cycle is right for a werewolf, but there's nothing else to indicate that it is a werewolf. But they only have a few more days of the full moon to catch it, or it disappears for another month, if it actually is a werewolf. So it's worth investigating. So they're on a time limit already, they believe. But nothing is what it looks like on the surface Fairy tales aren't always about the actual tale that's happening. They convey a moral to the audience rather than just telling that surface level story. And that's what's kind of happening in this episode. When they get to town, Sam and Dean go to interview the victim, Mr. Concrete Blocks, who has survived his attack, even though his two brothers were killed. He's pretty beaten up. Sam and Dean go in as agents Page and Plant. They were going to interview this guy like any regular monster victim interview they conduct. Except the guy was like, oh yeah, I've been expecting you. You're the sketch artist, right? They're a little bit taken aback and wrong-footed about this because no, they are definitely not sketch artists. But at least that would give them a reason for the guy to talk to them. Dean is the one who thinks first and says, yes, my partner here. Yes, the things he can do with a pen. And so poor Sam now has to get out a sketch pad and pretend to be a sketch artist. And this is where Sam proves that, no, he was not minoring in art at Stanford. Dean prefaces the interview by asking a question, how'd you get away? And the guy's like, I have no idea. The guy was attacking me and then he just didn't. He just stopped and gave me a blank look and then ran away. Sam and Dean are like, okay, that's definitely not werewolf behavior. This is not what we thought we were investigating. Then Sam gets out his notepad and asks the guy to describe his attacker as detailed as possible. The guy starts describing like a person, like he's about six feet tall, dark hair. They want proof that this guy was not human. And he starts by prompting very carefully, oh, what, what, what did his eyes look like? And the guy's like, "Uh, maybe blue. It was hard to tell. It was dark, you know. Dean prompts with, well, did they look uh, animal-ish? Because they think they're in a werewolf case. I think the guys by now should have realized that this person is not describing a non-human. Or he was describing something that at least was indistinguishable from a human. Unlike werewolves we've seen on this show with the big pointy teeth and the, the claws and the extra hair and the distorted facial features. And I think the guy would have probably noticed that. But they're still trying to prompt him in that direction as if it's like something he just doesn't want to say out loud or maybe he hasn't confronted in himself that, yes, he had this encounter with this monster. But no, it was just just a guy. 
And the guy holds up a hand and stops them from asking him any more stupid questions. He's like, those were my brothers. He killed my brothers. Can you imagine anything worse? And Sam is like, no, actually, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine anything worse. Then it cuts to Dean's facial reaction of, yep, I've already witnessed them kill my brother. I can't imagine anything worse than that. While Sam is simultaneously thinking, yep, I'm going to have to watch them kill my brother who doesn't want to do everything in his power to save his own life. Emotional anvils that both of them are hitting in the wrong direction here because they're, they're both feeling that, but they're only feeling their own side of it and not seeing the other. The guy does offer one more detail that might help them identify the attacker. He had a tattoo on his arm of Wiley Coyote, which Dean recognized from his description of chasing the roadrunner, which eventually Cass will understand that cartoon reference to. But before they can ask anything else, the doctor comes in and interrupts. Dr. Garrison, which I always find amusing once angels are introduced to the show and they're part of a garrison in heaven. (laughs) That's neither here nor there. That's just the man's name. Dean lures the doctor away out into the hallway under the pretense of asking him a few questions for the police. And that leaves Sam alone with poor Kyle, who points to the sketch pad and's like, oh, uh, can I see it? And Sam gets super duper awkward and presents it to him and says, you know, it's it's just a rough sketch right now. You know, it's not it's not really done. And he turns it around and it's. (laughs) it looks like a you know a five-year-old drew it it's amazing and I'm sure everybody has seen the Sam's beautiful artwork and if you haven't it's in my tag for the episode because (laughs) I, I imagine if they if they had a refrigerator in a home at this point Dean probably would have hung it up on the fridge and just taunted Sam with it forever because (laughs) ah Sam that's beautiful art Dean mocks Sam about his art as we open on a shot of yet another frog. I mean, we have to assume it's a different frog and that this frog didn't travel miles upon miles in order to just show up here again in their path. But Dean actually had a productive conversation with the doctor who gave him some information from the two dead brothers autopsy reports. Sam's like, let me guess, their hearts were missing. And Dean's like, nope. But parts of several other organs were. They agree that's gross. But it's not werewolf behavior. What else could it be? Well, their first go-to suggestion in season three is always demon because, you know, the world's crawling with them when it wasn't before. But what reason would a demon have to behave this way? Like, what is a demon getting out of this attack? And why would it just stop from killing Kyle? Meanwhile, we cut to a shot of a lovely forest, presumably somewhere near town, with the jingling bells of the fantasy music, little bouncy melody playing, letting us know that something might be going wrong in these woods. And we come upon a man and his wife walking through the woods, who, in very Hansel and Gretel fashion, are lost. They stumble out of the woods upon a little cottage out in the middle of nowhere. There's like nothing else around here. An old woman comes out and greets them. And they tell her, you know, thank God we're lost in the woods. 
the woman tells them, oh, it's fine. People get lost once in a while. The trail's twisty and mine's the only house up here. So she tells them she could tell, give them directions back to town. But it's going to take a while because you're really deep into the woods. And the husband, who had been looking for power bars that he already ate all of them in his backpack on the way in, spots a freshly baked pie in the windowsill. And he's like, oh, yeah. The woman doesn't want to go in. She's She just wants to get back on the trail. But the husband is being greedy man, and he wants a slice of that pie if he can get some. He's like, come on, she offered to let us rest for a little bit. And he winks at her and is like, come on, she's a harmless old woman. The wife capitulates and follows her husband inside. She gives them each a slice of pie and asks them if they want any more. The woman's just like, no, no, we really should be going with, you know, but thank you. And the husband tries to stand up and he falls over. He can't stand up. And then the woman stands up as well and she doubles over in pain and is like, did you drug us? What's going on? And the little old lady smiles at them and gets up and gets a knife and slashes the man's throat and starts stabbing him. And she's like, don't worry, everything's fine. And the woman's just screaming. And we look through one of the windows and there's a little girl there wearing a white dress with a red ribbon in her hair. Just watching all of this happen with a weird little smile on her face. Back at the hospital, somehow miraculously, the woman survived this ordeal. Sam and Dean have come back to interview her. They pause for a moment at the nurse's station and pretend to be busy with something else as two actual police officers in full uniform walk past and then they just carry on. Nobody even questions them. They come upon Dr. Garrison now talking to the woman who is very upset. Her husband has just been murdered in front of her. And she wants to leave the hospital. She's got a lot of arrangements to make and things to do. And he's telling her, no, the drugs are still in your system. You've got to rest. Dr. Garrison, of course, recognizes them from that morning. He's like, what the hell's going on here? My whole town's going insane. And Sam's like, we'll let you know as soon as we do. But yeah, this is definitely wacky. Once again, they ask how she got away. Because Dean's trying to get away from his pursuer, too, you know the demon who holds this contract. He asks how she got away, and she's like, I don't know. She didn't eat as much of the pie, the poisoned pie, as her husband did. And while she was busy carving him up, her words, the woman shoved the old lady who then cracked her head on the stove. And she's upset because, I mean, she killed somebody to escape. You know, it's also kind of a relief that this crazy old woman is dead who... She's, she's like one minute she was just a sweet old lady and the next minute she was a monster and yet Sam and Dean are not they know it's not demon possession this is not normal even for demon possession what's causing normal people in this town to do these horrific things and how does this relate to what he's worried about in Sam like is that really your brother what is monstrous in him and how it's been showing itself since Dean brought him back from the dead. But the woman asks them if they found a little girl at the house who she thought vanished into thin air. And she's like, well, maybe it was just the drugs. 
And then Dean prompts her to describe the little girl. And she's like, does that even matter if it was just a hallucination? And Sam insists that, yes, every detail matters. She goes on to describe a girl with dark hair of pale skin who just stood there and watched everything happen. And it was just surreal to see such a beautiful little girl standing there amidst that horror. So Sam and Dean hike up to the cabin to check it out. There's no signs of sulfur. And the only EMF they're recording is by the window where the girl stood that this spirit never entered the house, just stood outside the window and watched everything happen. Sam says that he's actually got a theory. Fairy tales. Dean's like, oh yeah, you think about fairy tales often? And begins his mockery of Sam over his knowledge of fairy tales. Yet Dean clearly knows enough to exactly follow along with everything Sam says. He recognizes Hansel and Gretel the minute Sam begins describing the scenario in that context. And then he recognizes the story of the three little pigs when he describes the three brothers in construction at the beginning of the episode. So Dean has zero problems making these connections, which means he knows these stories too. So this isn't just Sam being nerdy and Dean being stupid. This is Dean finding ways to keep poking at Sam because brothers. Dean does point out that fairy tales are supposed to be happily ever after things, right? And Sam reminds Dean that no, the original Brothers Grimm is full of gore and violence and and sex and they were the folklore of the time. That was stories for everybody, not just children. Dean's like, so you think this was a reenactment? That's kind of crazy. And Sam's like, mean as crazy as every day of our lives. And Dean's like, touche. Okay, you got me there. (laughs) So Dean complains that, yes, they're going to have to do research now. For a guy who complains about research, he's literally the one who just went in by himself into the library and did it while Sam waited outside. So I don't think he was complaining all that much. You know, he may roll his eyes at it, but... He's also good at it, but he wasn't able to find any record of any childhood deaths of a little girl with dark hair and pale skin in the town records, so they have hit another dead end. Who is this little girl, and where did she come from? But Dean complains that after six hours of research, he hopes Sam came up with something, and Sam comes back with a psychic medium who would put herself into a trance and all of her actions would be controlled by spirits. Sam thinks that that might be happening to the people who are near this ghost girl, that she is controlling their actions in that way. Dean's like, trances I get, but fairy tale trances, and then their walk through the park is interrupted as they are forced to confront the frog that we have now seen three times as of right now. Frog is just sitting right in the middle of the pathway, blocking their egress and riveting at them. They're both like, yeah, that's totally normal. So they they agree. Maybe it is fairy tales, but Dean offers that he is not kissing a frog. (laughs) And it's like, Dean, why would you be the one kissing a frog? Are you suggesting you're the princess, Dean? I've got a couple of essays about that scene on my blog coming at it from different points of view, and I will link those as well. I don't think there's a need to go ranting off about that scene. 
And I think that is as much a statement on Dean's feelings about himself and the fact that random citizens are being compelled to act against their will by this little girl who's basically puppeting them into doing what she wants them to for her own entertainment that Dean's not going to kiss the frog as much as it's a statement on any sort of ha-ha, Dean kissed a prince frog sort of joke. He's not going to be compelled to become the next victim of this ghost girl. But Sam, what's compelling him to do what he's doing? Is it really all Sam in there? And I think that's the contrast that Line is attempting to make. And my cat is gone batshit crazy. What's compelling you, Virgil? Jesus. (laughs) But Dean is also just super in denial still of his own deal and what the consequences of it would be for him. Just like he's in denial that he's going to kiss that frog. Granted, he doesn't end up having to kiss a frog, but he does end up having to fight the big bad wolf. So (laughs) Dean versus dogs, man. Across the street from Where they've been stopped by the little frog, though, Sam notices a pumpkin on somebody's front porch. And Dean's like, yeah, it's near Halloween. And Sam's like, no, 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 it's like Cinderella. You remember where pumpkin turns into the coach and the mice turn into the horses? Dean comes out with the line, could you be more gay? And it's like, well, geez, first of all, it has nothing to do with being gay, but... A lot of people read that line and say, oh, yeah, it's Dean like projecting onto Sam or whatever. But no, I think it's more about poorly chosen words (laughs) based on the time period when this came out. I think it would be written differently now. But to Dean's credit, that was a massive stretch like that came out of left damn field just because there was a pumpkin on somebody's porch and a mouse happened to run past it, you know, that oh my God, it's Cinderella acting itself out. Like, wow, Sam, that's really grasping at straws. But it turns out he's kind of on the money with it, despite it being absolutely a wild-ass stretch to even think that. Even if your mind is on fairy tales, if it's October and you see a pumpkin on somebody's porch, your first thought isn't going to be, oh my God, Cinderella. It's going to be Halloween. But no. Sam went right to Cinderella. So yeah, I support Dean on this one. That was that was a wild stretch and deserved a little bit of a put down for him reaching for it, though he turns out to be correct. So but I think it's just the phrasing is uh would not get used that way anymore. Thank God. Dean follows along with Sam. He picks the lock on the house. And as they get in inside, he's putting his lockpicks away. He jokes to Sam, hey, maybe you'll find your fairy godmother. So no matter how much he pauses to call Sam gay for knowing fairy tales, Dean also knows them. He knows the whole story of Cinderella as soon as Sam pointed it out. His eye roll, his indignance is just about Sam making that random ass connection to a pumpkin. As soon as he catches on, Dean also knows the entire fairy tale, the fairy godmother. He doesn't need any more of it explained to him. He uses it to taunt Sam specifically. So, yeah, Dean, you really are standing on mushy ground here. But as they're exploring the house, they hear a sound somewhere deep in the house. They both draw their weapons, shut the door, and 
follow the noise. A girl yells out from the kitchen, yeah, I'm in here. And they go in and they find her handcuffed to a drawer, like a to a piece of furniture. The girl tells them, yeah, her stepmom locked her up there. The girl's like freaking out because apparently this is not normal behavior for her stepmom to beat her up and chain her up and then leave. As they're talking to her, Dean spots the little girl who is peeking at them through the door. Dean follows her through the house. When he finally comes face to face with her, he's like, who are you? And rather than answering, she flickers and disappears right in front of him. And all that's left where she was standing is an apple. As if that's the answer to Dean's question of who she is. This is the Snow White story. Dean, he lets Sam explain it. And he's like, yeah, I've seen the porn version of it with that wicked stepmother. And Sam explains, yes, there is a wicked stepmother. And explains that she's not dead. She's just in a deep sleep, almost like she's dead. So they've got another lead. Back to the hospital for them. Is there anyone in a coma fitting this little girl's description? The nurse is like, we don't have any little girls in the coma ward. It's just mostly old guys and Callie, Dr. Garrison's daughter, who's in her 20s, but has been in the coma since she was eight. And Dr. Garrison won't give up on her. He goes in and reads to her every day from a giant book of Grimm's fairy tales. Wonder where Callie gets her ideas for what people should do to each other from. As Dr. Garrison reads from Little Red Riding Hood about the wolf showing up at the grandmother's house, he breaks inside and he tricks his way in and eats her all up. A man helps an older woman to her car from the grocery store, helps her load her groceries in the car, and then knocks her over the head and flings her into her own car and just beats her up. And we see on his arm a tattoo of Wiley Coyote. He's the same big bad wolf from the original opening scene of the episode. Three Little Pigs and Red Riding Hood then are canonically the same big bad wolf. <laughs> How that works, I have no idea because the big bad wolf dies in both of them. So whatever. But it does kind of look wild on the surface of it when you compare it to the actual overarching narratives of Supernatural as just Chuck's story telling the same stories over and over and over again using Sam and Dean as his actors over and over again in all of these stories just like this poor guy is being forced to play the role of the big bad wolf even though he really doesn't want to be he's just some poor innocent guy who got sucked into this because he has a funny tattoo that a little girl noticed and all these other people are being forced into playing these roles that they don't want any part of and are just confused by and hmm kind of interesting from that perspective too huh only these people have no free will to make any of these choices on their own and as soon as the spell breaks they're back to what the hell happened to me you know like what am I doing and I think the little old lady who accidentally got killed when the woman shoved her and knocked her head into the stove would have woken up and gone what on earth have I done, you know? So it's probably kind of a mercy what happened to her, but this guy is still freaked out as well by what he's done when he eventually will wake up. 
But as he peels out of the parking lot in the woman's van with her unconscious in the back seat now, the little girl, Callie, is now standing there watching all of this happen, as if this is just an entertainment to her. Back at the hospital, though, Sam and Dean walk in on Dr. Garrison reading the story to his daughter, who's lying in the bed and is clearly a grown-up version of the little girl we've been seeing the entire episode. Dr. Garrison tries to get out of talking to them. You know, they say they're sorry that Callie's been like this and this must be difficult, but they persist in talking to him. They follow him down the hall. Dean sort of insensitively asks, how long has she been like this? And Sam softens the blow of that with, we understand it. You know, we can't imagine how painful it must be for you to see her like this. And she's been like that since she was eight years old. Sam and Dean had found out that she'd been poisoned, that Dr. Garrison clarifies she drank bleach, and his wife brought her into the ER while he was on call. They never could figure out how she got a hold of the bleach as an eight-year-old, why she would drink it. And Dean asks, was that by any chance Callie's stepmother? And Dr. Garrison's like, well, how did you know that? And Dean's just like, a lucky guess. (laughs) Not... It's a fairy tale, and she told us that she was Snow White. (laughs) But his wife passed away last year, and Callie's all he's got left. At that point, they let him go and don't keep trying to torment him for information. So Sam was right about the Snow White thing, but doesn't understand what the mother's motive for poisoning the girl was. And Dean brings up a movie reference. He's like, tell Sam, you know fairy tales, I know movies. This was like in The Sixth Sense, the girl whose mother poisoned her for attention. Then Sam gets it. Yeah, Munchausen's by proxy. The parent wants the attention of and the feeling of pity from doctors and stuff taking care of their chronically ill child that they would hurt their own children to make them sick for attention and to be felt like they're special or something heroic for caring for a sick child even though they're the ones making the child sick so eh. but they rationalize that that's probably what the stepmother did to Callie and that's what she's trying to convey with the poisoned apple they're like well it's not like we can get rid of the ghost because we can't burn the bones because her body is still alive and has just been subjected to her father reading these morbid stories to her all these years, that getting angrier and angrier about her own situation because nobody knows the truth about what really happened to her, what her stepmother did to her. And she's finally just snapped. And as Sam and Dean are standing there trying to figure out what the heck they're supposed to do to get rid of this ghost, another victim comes in. The old woman who was beaten in her own car by the big bad wolf. Sam and Dean talked to the paramedic who brought her in. The woman did not survive her injuries. It looks like she was mauled by a wolf, they said, with bite marks on her and everything. Which is weird because it was a human dude with no wolf teeth, but they didn't recognize it as human bites. That's neither here nor there, though. Because Sam and Dean already know it's not a wolf. They flash their badges and ask if there was any next of kin. And the guy just hands over the paper with the address of where her granddaughter lives. (laughs) So like, 
yeah, their their badges are definitely enough to get them uh, whatever they need in this circumstance. As Dean takes the paper and starts to leave the hospital, he tells Sam, you find a way to stop Callie from doing this because clearly it's not going to stop otherwise. Sam's like, well, what about you? And Dean's like, I'm going to go stop the big bad wolf, which is the weirdest thing I've ever said, which honestly, I've been watching the show for over two seasons now. Well, I mean, I've been watching it far longer than that, but even in just this short amount of time that we've already gotten to know Dean Winchester, that is in no way the weirdest thing he's ever said, although it is pretty weird. But he's going to stop the big bad wolf. Sam's going to try and stop the ghost girl. And isn't that just how this episode plays out? At the end of the episode, Sam's the one who summons the demon and tries to stop the deals from happening and fails. At least he gets to stop Callie. But Dean is still facing those big bad wolves at the end of the season. Not wolves, but hellhounds. Dean and Dogs, man. I swear, it's a thing through the whole series. Pause for one moment of rage about the series finale and Dean stealing some random-ass dog and accepting that as a consolation prize after his entire history with dogs in this entire show. Yeah. No. Sorry. (laughs) that just still pisses me off so much okay I'm gonna say that in every episode where Dean has any sort of storyline even tangentially related to dogs we cut to a local junior high and the little girl is spots her grandmother's van after school lets out and smiles and happily goes over and gets in the back seat in her little red riding hood outfit her little red hoodie only to discover that it is not her grandmother at all, and it's a big scary man, Big Bad Wolf, has found her. He locks the door so she can't escape. She screams, and he goes speeding away from the school. Back at the hospital, Sam is out of options, out of plans. There's nothing else he knows of, short of confronting Dr. Garrison with the truth about his daughter, which he knows is going to come off horribly and he knows is going to take some wild convincing, but they don't really have any more options and people are dying. And if he does nothing, Dean is out there trying to stop the big bad wolf from killing some innocent little girl as well. So he's got to go play the part of the huntsman in this little story, which good timing on picking that story for when there's hunters in town hunting the big bad wolf. (laughs) Remember they originally came to town hunting the big bad wolf? Well, tie them into the next story. And even though they're the ones who understand Callie, they know what she's trying to, the information she's trying to convey. And it's Sam's job to convey that information while Dean plays the role of the hunter who comes and saves Little Red Riding Hood. Sam starts off by telling Dr. Garrison that what happened to his daughter was not an accident, and he doesn't want to hear this. He's like, you have no idea what happened to her, and he tries to walk away, but Sam follows him and says, there are things you don't know. Your wife poisoned your daughter, and that gets him to turn around, and he's angry about, like, how could you say something like that? Dr. Garrison tells Sam to stay away from him and his daughter and slams the door in his face. And Sam psychs himself up and opens the door and goes in anyway. He's entirely out of any other options. He's got to make this happen, even if it's horrible for this poor man. 
And this is where Sam, now that they're in a private room, Dr. Garrison attempts to call security. Sam puts his hand over the phone so he can't and tells him, look, you're going to think I'm crazy, but everything I'm saying is true. Callie is hurting people. More people are going to get hurt if you don't listen to what I'm telling you, even if you think I'm nuts. Her spirit is still here. And to Sam's eternal shock, Dr. Garrison looks over at his daughter and then sits down and says to Sam, so you've seen her too. This is not unbelievable news to him. Meanwhile, at Granny's house, <laughs> Dean breaks in, kicks the door down, and he goes in with his gun drawn and finds the little girl hiding. She's got a bloody cheek where she's been injured by the big bad wolf guy. He goes over to her and asks if she's okay, and she's like, yeah. And then she screams because the big bad wolf was already sneaking up on Dean, attacking him. He might just be a normal human being and not actually a werewolf or anything. But you hear this little sound effect every time he flings Dean. He like throws Dean across the room and into a china cabinet, smashing the glass. And it's like, even though he's not super powered normally, whatever trance hypnosis ghost power Callie has over him is giving him this ability to do these superhuman things. So Dean's having a very bad fight. He's really having a bad go of it. And some of that page is in the Dr. Garrison casting sides that you can read. And it says that this hurts him. This is a bad fight for Dean. Back at the hospital, Dr. Garrison is talking to Sam, telling him that he's felt her presence. He's even seen her standing at the foot of his bed and thought it was a dream, thought it wasn't real. And Sam confirms that, no, yeah, it's very, very real. Sam describes her and tells Dr. Garrison that she's been trying to talk to him. Dr. Garrison's like, you're not a cop, are you? And Sam's like, no. And short of explaining what hunters are, he just explains that he deals with things like this. He's still upset about what Sam said about his wife having poisoned Callie. And Sam confirms that, yes, Callie told us that herself. Not in so many words, but she made herself very clear. He doesn't say, she left us an apple like Snow White. He just conveys that, yes, this information came directly from Callie. And he doesn't believe him at first. He can't believe that about someone he loved, who he thought loved his daughter too. That's the ultimate betrayal. But Sam reiterates, Callie is hurting people. We can't let her continue doing that. She's in pain. She's suffering because of this. She wants you to listen to her and to hear what she's trying to tell you. And then we cut back to Dean getting flung around by super powerful Wiley Coyote Wolfman while Callie watches on with a little smile on her face. And how just like in the story, Dean the Huntsman pulls a pair of scissors out of a knitting basket and fights back against the big bad wolf trying to kill him and trying to kill Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> so she's forcing Dean. Dean did not want to be forced to participate in one of these little vignettes of fairy tales. And yeah, he's still got free will. He could probably run out of the house, but I don't know that he could at this point. He's been entrapped into the story. 
I don't think Dean would leave because what would happen to the little girl he's there to protect? He has a choice, but I don't think he would choose to leave even if he could because that's not who he is as a person. He would not leave this little girl and just run away. So he picked up the scissors. He played into the story as it was set up for him to play it, which describes an awful lot of the entire plot of Supernatural, doesn't it? As we're watching Callie, we hear an overlay of like a staticky voice saying, Callie, it's me, it's daddy. And she hears that voice and she flickers out and we are taken back to the hospital. He talks directly to her, asking if that's true, if that's what your mother did to you and asking her to confirm that for him and telling her that he's listening to her now, which is all she apparently wanted because the little girl appears Sam points her out and Dr. Garrison turns and the little girl nods like, yes, that's what happened. And that's enough for him to accept it. Meanwhile, we cut back to Dean and the big bad wolf and the wolf's starting to get the upper hand in the fight. And Dean still has his pair of scissors gripped tightly in his hand, trying to fight the guy off. And then we cut back to the hospital and Dr. Garrison is apologizing to his daughter. He asks her to stop what she's doing, to stop hurting people, that he knows the truth now and it's time for her to let go and for him to let her go. She accepts that. He turns around to his daughter in the bed, unconscious, and kisses her forehead as her heart monitor flatlines. We know then she's gone. Back at the grandmother's house, the big bad wolf though, is still fighting with Dean until Dean suddenly gets the upper hand. He's about to deliver a killing blow with the big pair of scissors. And the guy he's fighting is like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Where am I? What's going on? Like he just woke up out of a trance. But Dean, meanwhile, he was never in that sort of a trance. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. So he wasn't being controlled to that extent. He was still used by the story, but he still had all of his free will, which is basically the final points of the entire series in Dean's character arc. Back at the hospital, Dr. Garrison realizes that his daughter is gone and he turns and the little ghost girl is gone as well. Sam and Dean meet with Dr. Garrison one last time and he asks, you know, is it really over? And Sam's like, yeah, thanks to you. You know, all the craziness that had brought Sam and Dean to the town in the first place that now he finally has an explanation for it all. And he comments that he should have let Callie go a long time ago. That could apply to either Sam or Dean regarding the other one. You know what I mean? (laughs) Dean could have let go of Sam, could have let him pass on. Nope. He traded his life, which has caused all these other issues. Sam could let Dean go now, but he's not, which is trying to cause all these other issues. Dean tells Dr. Garrison, you know, we'll see you around. And Dr. Garrison's like, I really hope not. (laughs) I never want to have this kind of trouble with, you know, again, that requires your services. And as soon as Dr. Garrison walks away, Dean tells Sam... You know, that's some good advice. You should listen to that. (laughs) And Sam's like, what, you want me to just let you go? Dean can't even really look at Sam at first. But then he just 
finally meets Sam's eyes and doesn't even say a word. He just walks away like, duh, what else are you going to do? And this is where Sam begins to go batshit crazy because, oh my God, Sam, really? I get it, (laughs) you know, but holy shit. At their motel, we open on another shot of the full moon. No clouds in front of it this time, just a clear sky and the full moon. It fades into a shot of the painting above the bed where Dean is sleeping of a full moon. Like, it's the exact same full moon. (laughs) We pan down and see Dean asleep, but Sam's bed empty. Sam sneaks out of the motel room, drives to the nearest crossroads, plants the little spell to summon a demon, and summons the crossroad demon, who turns out to be the same one that Dean has now summoned twice, just in a different body. She starts off with the same attitude as the demon had previously, asks Sam what she can do for him, and Sam pulls the colts on her, He tells her that he wants her to beg for her life. And it's like, Sam, he's coming at it from a position of he really does believe his argument from the opening scene that we have the cult. We have a weapon against her. We can have her break your deal. No problems. He he seriously went into this thinking that this would work and he'd get to come back to Dean and tell him your deal's done. And it turns out that by the end of this conversation, Sam realizes he had not only had zero cards, but he was lucky to get out of this with his own life intact. But the demon does recognize, you know, she she's not scared of it, but she does recognize the cult, but also that it's not the original cult. The demon guesses that it was Ruby who helped them make the gun work again. And describes Ruby as a pain in her ass that would get will get what's coming to her. Sam just tells her to shut up. Sam pulls out what he thinks is his ace in the hole with, I'm here to make you a deal. You let Dean out of his deal. We all live. Otherwise, you stop breathing permanently. And he cocks the gun. And she just thinks this is hilarious. And here she comes with the demonic party line that Sam is getting fed from Ruby and now from her and that he'll hear from a lot of other demons, like the yellow-eyed demon who's always talked about Dean dragging him down and stuff. And she pulls out all of that, like, do you even really want to get him out of that deal? She's like, Dean is always dragging you down and you're always cleaning up his messes. It's like, what, what, what messes? is he cleaning up of Dean's but this pings how Sam actually feels sometimes she asks Sam if he's tired of being bossed around like the little brother and it's like well yeah yeah he is he feels like he gets bossed around by Dean a lot and probably has his whole life and that's a good lever to pull demons know that for Sam she tells Sam flat out you're better than him. Admit it. You're going through the motions, but you'll you'll be a tiny bit relieved when he's gone. And t- Sam's just like, you shut your mouth. There probably is some piece of him at this point in the story 
that would enjoy or that maybe craves that sort of freedom, like the same part of him that ran away from home when he was a kid, when Dean got in trouble for what happened to him. But Sam was like, I was 12. I was a kid. It was freedom. I loved it. It was great. Nobody was telling me what to do. And yeah, freedom to like a kid is really different than freedom to an adult. Because at this point in his life, Sam should understand what the other side of that coin looks like. And he's been told flat out how Dean has been raised in some respects. I mean, he doesn't know the full story, but he's been told enough times now that I've said in several previous episodes that it really pisses me off that Sam never seems to remember the abuse that Dean suffered and only thinks of his own And I get that, but Dean was forced to spend his entire life having to care about Sam's feelings and everything. And Sam spent his whole life never having to worry about what Dean's feelings were about anything. It's just a totally different dynamic that each of them feels towards the other. And what she's doing here is just as manipulative as anything that Ruby will do to him over the next year and a half, because that's another line that will be a final split between Sam and Dean towards the end of season four. The whole poisonous pill of Dean can't handle it. You're the better one. You're the only one who can do this, Sam. Dean can't. He's going to fail because you're better than him. That's just something that Sam is desperate to feel about himself. And meanwhile, he hasn't noticed that Dean's always mocking his intelligence because Dean feels like a moron himself. And Sam does have that insight because he even gives that line to Dean multiple times over the series, like in season eight, before either of them takes on the trials. And Dean was the one who was going to try to take them on. And Sam's like, no, you're not a grunt. You're one of the best hunters ever. And you're a genius when it comes to the lore and you're just so good at this and like admits that he doesn't feel that good about his own skills as he knows Dean's are. And it's just like, yeah, well, why can't you like live that outside of those moments where you're trying to convince Dean not to do something suicidally stupid? Like, why does it have to only come out in those moments and at every other moment you feel resentful toward him for this? I get it, but (laughs) anyway. So, yeah, sorry, Sam frustration spilling out because, yes, that is a lever they use to manipulate Sam with over and over again. And he keeps buying right into it. And it just makes me angry. (laughs) Sam gives her one more chance to let Dean out of his deal. And she says some interesting things. No, Dean's an adult and he made that deal of his own free will. And he did. I mean... It was manipulated six ways from Sunday, and he was warped into the feeling like he had to for his entire life, which we've discussed when he made the deal. Sam argues every deal can be broken, and she replies, not this one, meaning this deal is different. I mean, first of all, he only got one year, but there's something at the core of this deal that is unlike any other deal. Sam goes to the next argument that he used on Dean at the beginning of this episode when he was arguing for this plan. Well, then, if you won't break the deal, 
I'll just kill you, and then the deal's broken anyway. Which she also shoots down with, I don't even hold the deal. My boss does, and he's nowhere near as cuddly as I am. Sam doesn't want to believe that at first. He thinks she's bluffing, but then he realizes she may not be, so he starts trying to demand answers as to who it is who holds the contract, and she's like, I can't tell you that. But she does confirm that killing her will do zero to break the deal, that Dean will still get dragged to hell regardless. Sam does seem to believe that. He lowers the gun. But she does tell him that it's an ironclad deal, that her boss wants Dean's soul, and nothing that he can do will break the deal. Sam mulls that over for a moment as some ominous music plays, and then raises the gun and just shoots her right in the forehead. And she's just shocked and then falls over dead. The camera goes back to Sam and he just looks cold. Like the way he looked when he killed Jake and the way he looked when he killed Casey the demon last week. No remorse that not only did he kill this demon, but the woman she was possessing just the cost of doing business. And all of this is pushing Sam and was originally pushing Sam toward that dark destiny that the show kept hinting at, that whatever it was that would be able to save Dean from this deal that apparently was an ironclad deal that they could not break, whatever was he was going to end up having to resort to by the demons pushing at him from all sides, taking on his demon army leader role, to the fullest and whatever it took to encompass that and become that, that would destroy Sam, but would save Dean from his deal. Like almost as if all of this with Dean was being used to manipulate Sam into saying yes and into doing all of that with Ruby. Only the story couldn't play out that way. And so this stuff all got repurposed and Sam's whole arc got pushed back. And it became more about Dean, what all of this meant for Dean, rather than just for Sam. And honestly, it probably would have been fascinating, whatever happened otherwise. But my God, this actually, for me, I know a lot of people don't like season three because it's shortened and the story seems kind of choppy. But to me, this sets up like everything that happens in the rest of the series. As far as their interpersonal dynamics, like their character arcs, starting points, their baselines kind of get set into concrete here in season three. And by the end of season three, we really know who these people are as people. This is only episode five of season three. So we have seven more episodes before the writer's strike hits and production shuts down And we don't even know if the series is going to be over. But I think it's pretty clear right here in what was originally supposed to be episode 5 of 22 and ended up being 5 of 16, what Sam's arc would have sort of looked like had the writer's strike not happened and had he been able to be pushed a little bit closer to the dark side by the end of like episode 13 or 14 of the season And then as things gradually shifted into more the demon blood arc 
that we won't see till season four now. That seems to me to be what the demon and the fact that Sam keeps killing demons early in this season is tipping him towards. But doing it all in the name of saving Dean's life. But of course, that's going to get thrown away. So let's talk about what actually does happen. (laughs) In that these just become open questions for Sam. And this whole, is that really Sam that you brought back, will end up being an irrelevant question. Because yeah, it's really Sam. We've already seen that as the audience. Even though he's making these terrible emotional choices that are probably all wrong and really dangerous for him. He doesn't care at this point. There's too much at stake with Dean and his own guilt over Dean having traded his life for his and wanting to save Dean from this, yet still struggling with what may be true about how he really feels about all of it. Like, we know how he felt in season one, getting dragged back into hunting. He hated it. He didn't want to be there. He felt like it was ruining his life. And yet he finally did get the revenge that he sought originally. But at what cost? Like it cost him everything else again. It cost him his girlfriend at the beginning of the series. It cost his brother's life now. And it cost his father's life. Like what good is any of it at this point? And then he just wants free from it. Well, he will be free from it. He has the choice to be once Dean goes to hell. But he can't. He can't let go of that because of who he is. Because he does care. He's not going to be happier once Dean's gone. And his life's not going to be less messy or he won't be free like the demons are taunting him with here. So, yeah, those things are not true about Sam. But he still feels like a kernel of truth there, even though he would never act on that. He's not just going to abandon Dean and give up on him and be relieved and go back to Stanford and go back to college. And, you know, he, he's way past that by now. But it's still a kernel of who he is as a person. Ah, <sighs> free will's messy, right? There's no black and white. Everything's just shades of gray and fairy tales, apparently. <laughs> anyway, I think that's about it for this week's episode. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 6, Red Sky at Morning, when we will finally hear the name Castiel in canon. Totally unrelated to our Castiel, but the name is spoken in canon. So, <laughs> Ah, fun times. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at either Mittensmorgle or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865. Or you can email me at Mittensmorgle at gmail.com. And also, if you're not registered for the more profound con this weekend, it's Saturday at 1 Eastern Time. I think. East. One Eastern time. Go to amoreprofoundcon.com and register if you haven't already. I'm going to be speaking on one of the meta panels there. And there's panels on fanfic and fan art and fandom in general. Wonderful things happening. So if you miss having the community of a fandom con like the old Zestiel cons, this is a great opportunity. It's all on Zoom. 
come join us and have a great time. I will put a link to it in the post for this episode. So hopefully everybody at least sees the post before Friday and can register because the con's Saturday. But I'm looking forward to that. And I hope everybody else is too. Oh my God. I hope my cats didn't make too much a mess of a mess of this episode. I, They were like fighting in the bathroom at one point while I was recording. And then they were fighting on the stairs. And I just heard disintegrating paper noises from downstairs. So like hopefully they haven't like <laughs> destroyed my entire office down there. Like, But Virgil... One of my cats, his favorite toy now is we have a, he, he likes chewing on it. The kitchen sponge. It's a scrub daddy sponge and he likes the texture of it. Like we have another like actual sponge in the kitchen and he doesn't like that. It's the scrub daddy. I got to find out if scrub daddy makes cat toys because my God, I don't want him to like actually break off pieces of it and eat it, but he just chews on it. Like, stop it. So I had to hide their kitchen sponges in the cabinet with my coffee mugs. And I forgot I had one. I had a scrub daddy in the bath that I keep in the bathtub that I used to, like, clean the bathtub with. And he found that one, too. So I know it's just this thing that he likes the texture of chewing. There he goes running into the kitchen now. God, I cannot win. (laughs) Oh, my God. Ugh. The joy of having kittens, man. They are just batshit insane. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I guess it's good to have something fuzzy to think about. Except that I'm always terrified he's going to eat a sponge and die or something. My God. Cats, man. Anyway, have a good one.